Welcome to church. Welcome to Trinity. My name is Chris McDaniel, the senior pastor here, and we're going to read from Genesis 50. But before we do, I just want to uh, give you an update and uh, frankly celebrate something uh, so good, so beautiful. So many of you who are a part of our church and frankly lots of people around our city uh, gathered uh, on Friday for the One Race March on Atlanta. And uh, I think the last count was somewhere um, at or around 13,000 people gathered at Centennial Park and uh, walked to the Capitol building where we prayed and uh, lamented and heard uh, wonderful insight from leaders in our city, uh, prayed for our new uh, police chief, uh, and then we marched back to Centennial Park and had worship together. Uh, Y'all, it was such a beautiful and powerful day to march for racial justice, uh, but not just racial justice, to walk together um, as a united church in Atlanta, asking God for reconciliation and for healing. Um, I would ask you to continue to pray for our city. But y'all, it was like heaven on, on Friday. It felt like a taste. And as I stand here in a largely empty sanctuary, uh, I'm just reminded of the fact that I, I miss you. Uh, I miss this house being full of people uh, worshiping God together. And I think that's probably what made Friday so meaningful, so powerful, uh, beyond the obvious, which is the, the black and white and Latino and Asian church coming together to pray. Uh, it was just good to be together singing and worshiping to God together. And I just want to say to you, I look forward to the day when we will do that uh, together again in this place. And, and that leads me to one other thing I want to say before we, we start. Um, we are actively working on what stepping our way into a phased reopening looks like. Uh, we know that um, you need to be in the, in the family of God and reminded by being in the house of God. We also know uh, that we might be finished with, with COVID-19, but it's certainly not finished with us. So we're taking a very measured approach on what it looks like for us to move beyond just simple digital communication into something that's a mixed metaphor where people are in this building. So beginning in mid-July, the, the week of July 12th, we're aiming to launch a Tuesday morning and a Thursday morning service uh, that will be a 30-minute service where you would use uh, Eventbrite or Planning Center or some medium to, to sign up for it with limited capacity, masks on, where we would um, meet together for 30 minutes, essentially, and uh, hear a, a couple of songs, um, be able to hear readings and a short sermon, and then have communion in your seat. Um, our uh, geniuses, Marty Reardon, bought about 10,000 of these prepackaged communion things that'll uh, be sitting there on, on the seat for you to receive communion. So Tuesday and Thursday, we're going to start that for morning, uh, a morning worship service. Wednesday night, every week during that period of, of time, we're going to have an evening uh, soaking prayer kind of worship night where people can come and sit, read their Bibles, and hear uh, our worship team uh, lead worship for 30 minutes where they would just be able to be in a contemplative space with God. We want to welcome you back into the church, but to do so in a responsible uh, and, and godly way. So be looking out for that on our website website and social media. We're going to be stepping a baby step into some reopening coming up here in just a few short weeks. And finally, before we read, I just want to say happy Father's Day. Um, Dad, I love you and I'm thankful that you um, are my father. And for those of us in this church who have and enjoy a relationship with our dads, um, bless you today. For those of you in this church who have either lost their fathers or don't have a relationship with their dad. I just want you to know that we are praying for you on a day like today, maybe especially. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 50, 
uh, beginning in verse 15. I'm going to read a short passage at the end of a really beautiful and complicated story. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers said, What if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? So they approached Joseph saying, Your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now, now therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him and said, we are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and then let's jump in and see what the Lord would have us to see today as we look at the word of God. Lord, we ask you today for help. We ask for peace. We ask for insight. I pray, God, that you would help us today to uh, gain clarity from the word of God. Help us, God, to see what you would want us to see and to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're a part of this church community, you know that Roughly 600 of us are going through the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course. And um, this week, we're going to be talking about looking into your past, knowing yourself and your story in order to be the kind of woman, the kind of man that God has called you to be. And I can't think of a better example than the story from the life of Joseph. And if you know anything about this story, you know that Joseph forgives. He forgives his family. And if you, you know the details, you know what a big deal that forgiveness actually is. Um, but the lesson that a lot of Christians take when they read a short passage like this one is just your job is to forgive, so just forgive. Like do the work that you need to do to sort of let bad things go. But in truth, we all know that it's very difficult for us to forgive the wrongs that have been committed against us, especially when those wrongs come from people that we know that we should be able to trust. And I'm thinking of two groups when our families of origin wound us or betray us, as was the story with Joseph, it is hard to forgive. And when the family of God wounds us, hurts us, betrays us, it's very hard to forgive. And the truth of the matter is most of the deep wounding that occurs throughout our life occurs in one of those two groups. People wouldn't be able to hurt us unless we were in and shared an intimate space with them. That's why forgiveness is so difficult. And I think that we compound the issue because we don't even really know what forgiveness even really means. Some of us would say something like, well, if I forgive someone, I'm saying to them, well, what they did to me really wasn't that big of a deal. Or I'm saying like, ah, fine, don't worry about it. And that's where when we read a snippet of a story like the one that we just read and we see um, Joseph saying, what you meant for my harm, God actually intended to work for good. And we think, how on earth could a person even say such a thing? Well, today we're going to examine Joseph's life. 
We're going to look at his relationship with the people that he chooses to forgive so that we can recognize that the Lord is probably inviting each and every one of us to consider how we might forgive the people who are close to us who have also injured us and wounded us. It's my conviction here in Atlanta and in America that in the weeks and months and years ahead, there's going to be lots of opportunity for repentance and forgiveness, for asking for forgiveness and then extending grace and forgiveness to one another. As I consider the events of COVID-19 and all that we're experiencing in our city, in our country, and in our world relative to race, it's clear to me that there's going to be ample opportunity for us Christians, specifically those of us who are Christian, to learn how to become the kinds of people who are able to unreservedly ask for forgiveness and then also become the kinds of people who are able to unreservedly extend forgiveness. So we've got to live on both sides of that continuum. And it's my conviction that if we fail to get this right, we will become increasingly bitter and alienated from one another. We'll become disenfranchised, unreconciled. And frankly, a lot of the pain that we're experiencing today in our world and in the church, and maybe even in our church very particularly, comes from the fact that it's hard to be reconciled. The reason that forgiveness is so painful for us is the very reason why we must learn how to do it. See, the word forgiveness implies that the person or persons who wronged us can never actually make us whole. Not even if they try. So what does it mean? What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is essentially a legal term. It means to intentionally cancel a debt that is owed, regardless of whether or not the person who owes us or the people who owe us are able to pay or not. My mind goes to the story in the Gospel of Matthew, a story that Jesus tells about forgiveness. And in that story, a man owes a debt that he could never pay. And if you're familiar with this story, um, the, the numbers and the sort of uh, monetary denominations in the Bible really don't mean a lot to us. So we hear about denarii and things like that, and we think, what, what on earth is that? Well, in the story that Jesus tells about forgiveness, um, the, the amount of money that the dude owes is uh, so astronomical that it's actually absurd. It's like a number, like a bazillion jillion. It's like a number that doesn't even mean anything. It's so big. And he is thrown into jail or under the threat of being thrown into jail. And he goes to the master and he says, forgive me, I, I can't pay you. And the fact of the matter is there was no way that this guy in the story Jesus tells would be able to pay. And so the man cancels the debt. He, he, he forgives it. He says, you no longer owe. And then the story goes on that the guy walks out and he finds a guy who owes him 100 denarii. And I, I just want to say, 100 denarii was, is not nothing. It, it was roughly in the time of Jesus about 100 days worth of work. So it was something. But it was something that the guy could feasibly maybe figure out how to pay. See, his debt was astronomical. The other debt was a big one, like a third or a little less of a third of a year's worth of work. And he grabs the man and he locks him in jail and he says, pay me back what you owe me. And the reason Jesus tells that story is to illustrate the fact that in the economy of God, he doesn't say, well, if the debt is absurd, I'll forgive it. And if it may be payable, pay up. 
What Jesus is trying to say is that the instinct of God is to always settle debts owed by people like you and me through forgiveness. The instinct of God is not to say you pay and you don't pay. It's to say, I want to cancel debts. But in order for us to intentionally forgive a debt, we must be clear about what the debt really is. Otherwise, we're living in a kind of denial space where we think, I don't want to pay attention to that. That's why we need to look at Joseph's story. Because for us to understand what he says at the end of the story, we need to actually account for the story. Because if we don't, what we're going to do is we're going to think, well, how holy of Joseph? How special of Joseph? Or we'll think, well, it probably wasn't that bad for the guy. And he just sort of let it go. But that certainly is not the story. Let me tell you this story. It's actually one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. Is so rich, so beautiful, so layered, so powerful. Um, I think we all probably can find ourselves somewhere in the story of Joseph. Joseph had a complicated history with his family. <laughs> don't we all? If you don't think you have a complicated history with your family, that's probably a part of the complicated history of your family. As they say, denial is not just a river in Egypt. There's a pastor joke there, and in your living rooms, I'll just give you permission to laugh a little bit about that. So let me tell you about Joseph. He was the 11th of 12 children. That's probably problematic in and of itself. He was also his daddy's favorite. His dad once gave him a colorful coat, and Joseph put the colorful coat on, and he walked around, and he's like, look, boys, at my colorful coat. He looked at all of his big brothers, people who should have been ahead of him in line, and effectively said to them over and over and over again through his actions, daddy likes me best. Favored children are super annoying. Um, they're the kind of kids you just want to get rid of, and that was certainly the case for Joseph's brothers. Joseph was immature and arrogant, he had a number of dreams when he was a young boy. And the dreams actually were really, um, they were powerful dreams about his leadership potential relative to his family. So dreams where like his brothers would be bowing down to him. And Joseph was so immature that he would go to his brothers and he would say, hey guys, I had a great dream last night. In my dream, you all bowed down to me. His brothers wanted to kill him. His own arrogance and immaturity infuriated and hurt his siblings. Their family was a mess. Their family was complicated. So his brothers decide they're going to get rid of him. And they end up faking his death and selling him into slavery. Think about how that would impact your next Christmas as a family. Well, where'd little Joseph go? We think he may be dead, gone. So Joseph gets carted off to Egypt and it wasn't a great place for a Jew. He becomes a slave in Egypt. He'd lost everything he knew. He'd lost his name, his culture, his friends, his associations with his family, which I guess in some ways um, might have been a respite because they wanted him dead. And Joseph ends up in prison. And he languishes in prison for 13 years, for a really long time. At one point, he almost gets out of jail, but then people forget about him. Joseph's story in the sort of young adult formation time of his life was one of being overlooked and marginalized, victimized, betrayed. He's in this space of feeling nobody cares for me. Nobody's praying for me. Nobody advocates for me. And then another dream comes into his story. 
This time he interprets a dream and it lands him in a place of prominence. He's taken out of jail and given a role in Egypt. And Joseph eventually, through his own favor, rises up. He has a role of prominence. And then bad things happen in Egypt. See, a famine hits the whole region. And Joseph is a responsible and clever He's got ingenuity about him. And he ends up saving grain. And then when a famine hits, he rations the grain so that the Egyptians are able to survive. Joseph's influence makes a way for him. What we're told is that even in the darkest days of Joseph's life, he had a tender heart before God. He walked with God. He tended to God. In the midst of all of his family pain, he tends to his relationship with God. And then when the critical moment comes, he's useful He's able to be engaged. He doesn't fall down the rabbit hole of resentment and bitterness. So Joseph's brothers, meanwhile, live back in Israel. And they also are suffering from the famine. And they think Joseph is long dead, I'm sure. And they hear that the Egyptians have food to spare. So they make the trek to Egypt to ask for help. And in a remarkable twist of events... These brothers who sold him into slavery, thought about killing him, wanted to get rid of him, resented him, hated him. They end up in front of Joseph and they ask him to help them. And that's close to where we picked up the story in the reading that we engaged. Joseph hears that his dad, the one that he loved, the one that loved him the most, is dead. He hears the fear in his brother's voice once he connects the dots that it's them. And his brothers had a really good reason to be afraid. They had wronged Joseph. They had injured Joseph. And now they're terrified. And yet, Joseph forgives. He he cancels the debt that they could never actually pay back. He actually says to them, you don't owe me anymore. I remember many years ago, We were so privileged to have Archbishop Emmanuel Collini stand in this pulpit and preach to our church. Archbishop Collini was the um, Archbishop of Rwanda in the aftermath of the genocide. He himself was a Tutsi. And if you're familiar with that horrific murder of people, the Hutus um, afflicted and and engaged in genocide with regard to the Tutsis in Rwanda— And I remember Collini would go to the prisons and he would speak to Tutsi victims, men, women who had been, um, had seen their families killed by a next door neighbor who they'd grown up with, had seen priests lock the doors of churches and set the church on fire to kill everyone inside. And he spoke to people who were um, eaten up with unforgiveness and he looked at them and he said, as long as you do not forgive, you carry the weight of that brother, that neighbor, that adversary on your back. And he said in a way that was so pastoral, he said, and they are too heavy to bear. See, when we forgive, we forgive in order to take the weight of those off of us who would otherwise crush us. So forgiveness is not just an act of kindness to the person or persons who have wronged us. It's also an act of kindness to ourselves. We must take the weight off. And many of us today are bearing weights that are Not only difficult, but impossible to bear. We're carrying the memory of wrongs done. And in that sense, Joseph is 
our teacher, Joseph, is able to say there comes a time where we must learn how to forgive, where we must learn how to cancel debts and be the kinds of people who ask that debts we owe would be canceled. I can think of a number of obstacles to forgiveness. Number one, we, you know, we live in denial relating to the hurt and sorrow of the past. When we do that, we, we can't forgive. Number two, when we become entrenched in anger and resentment, we, we get stuck, we become stuck. Number three, we continue to ask others to heal that which only God can heal. So what can we do? Here's where I want to end it. I believe that we can do three things to position ourselves to be forgivers and to become the kinds of people who ask for forgiveness. Number one, and I think there's a slide for this, we must be willing to own and acknowledge the pain of our past. We've got to sit with hurt. Hurts we've committed and hurts we've received. We have to be present to it. And I will say to you, this is one of the reasons why we are not very good at forgiveness because it's really hard to look at something that hurts. It's very difficult to look at a situation and say, I have injured or my people have injured your people. Frankly, that's part of what is on offer right now in this moment of racial reconciliation. In order for us to be reconciled, black and white, Latino and Asian, for us to be the kinds of people who are healed, we have to actually own and acknowledge the hurt of the past. We have to reject forms of denial as a coping mechanism. For hurt to be healed, it must be seen and acknowledged. And this is scary work. This is hard work. This is why I think we have to lean into uncomfortable spaces. This is why Jesus tells Peter when he asks him in an exasperated way, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven times? Jesus looks at Peter and says 77 or 70 times, seven times. I believe that in front of you and me, if we're going to be the kinds of people who experience healing, we have to do the work of seeing and forgiving in our hearts so that we'll be ready when the critical moment comes to extend forgiveness and exchange it. Number two, we have to cultivate. I would say we have to work to cultivate an awareness of God in the middle of that pain. See, Joseph experienced the presence of God, an awareness of God when he was in prison, when he had been betrayed. He was at the bottom of a pit. Just last week, Marty quoted a psalm, one of my favorite verses in the book of Psalms, where the writer says, even darkness is not dark to you, O God. And what the psalmist is saying there is darkness is dark to us, but not to God. God can navigate dark spaces. He does so far better than we do. When we find ourselves in dark spaces, we become disoriented. And oftentimes what we do is we stop. We, we just sort of freeze but God's able to find us in dark places. That's been a prayer of mine. God, help me become aware of you in dark places. Help me become aware of your nearness, even when I cannot see clearly. And I would say that right now is a season for many of us, maybe all of us, where we're not seeing clearly. And there's nothing wrong with your eyes. When you're in a season of darkness, it's, it's normal to be unable to see. 
We don't need to beat ourselves up about that. I think we have to acknowledge it and say, God, help me experience you. This is why spiritual practices mean so much. This is why the church cannot simply be engaged about activity and inactivity and activism. We have to do that from a place of being with God. There is no time like the present for you and for me to cultivate an awareness of God's presence. It's one of the reasons why I think EHS, the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course, is so vitally important and timely for us as a church right now. We have to have somewhere to go with the pain or we won't know what to do with it. And then we'll tend to live either in resentment on one side or denial on the other. Finally, I believe that we have to wait for the fullness of time. This is, waiting is, an act of trust. And I say this because I stand before you as the patron saint of those who rush and make messes. Sometimes we have to refrain from rushing healing and forgiveness. One of the things I've been aware of lately is that sometimes in the anxiety of the person who's offended, when they realize they've offended, there's a kind of rush to ask for forgiveness and get it really fast in order to make yourself feel better. I believe the Lord wants us to be timely. And a part of that means learning to sit in uncomfortable places before we feel reconciled. If you rush healing, you're probably doing so out of your own anxiety. And this is true with parents and kids. It's true with friends, with spouses. It's also true when the white church demands that the black church forgive them in a hurry to assuage guilt and condemnation. Do you see that the dynamics are the same, whether we're talking about macro injustice or a micro injustice? And y'all, one of the things that we have to do is check our anxiety at the door and say, I'm not going to rush something that may take time. See, Joseph did the pre-work. God provided in the fullness of time after that pre-work, God provided an opportunity for him to forgive. We cannot rush. If we rush, when we rush, we miss God's best. So what do you think would have happened if Joseph had rushed to his brothers back home and said, guys, I just want to let you know I forgive you? They probably would have finished the job that they started many years prior. Joseph learned to wait. But here's the kicker. When Joseph encountered his brothers, after doing the work in his own heart, tending to his own family's pain, he was actually ready to forgive because the conversation was not new to him. It was new to his brothers, but not to him. Joseph had been preparing for this moment, and that's the way it usually is. The offender always, always has to catch up to the awareness level of the offended. The one who injures is always behind the pain and awareness of the pain of the ones they have injured. We've got to let things come to a place where the two meet. And I believe that in God's economy, the two always meet. And so today you may feel late to the forgiveness conversation. There's no time like the present to begin to wake up to wrongs that we've committed collectively and personally. And today I want to speak to you, those of you who feel ahead and frustrated and sad and in pain and exhausted. I want to say to you that God sees you. God hears you. God loves you. And he wants in his grace there to be a meeting. 
And so sometimes the best we can do is just sit still and ask him for the meeting of the two. I believe the Lord wants us to be the kinds of people who ask for forgiveness and the kinds of people who are able in the fullness of time to extend it. I love the way the story ends. Joseph remained with his family. That which was cut off became healed. And I'm sure they had moments where it didn't feel as healed. Moments where Joseph was like, hey guys, remember that time when you threw me in that pit? Times when his brothers thought, you're just not getting it again, Joseph. And yet they walked it out. And I believe that's God's call on each and every one of us as the family of God. If you're able, let's stand together, even if it's awkward. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. May we be forgivers and receive forgiveness. We'll see you when we see you. Amen.